Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis on the post-war victory perspective of Abraham, his 318 men, and the king of Sodom after the rescue of Lot. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org and on iTunes. We want to thank you for your support of the Friendship with God radio program. We want to encourage you to call now or after the program to continue this program on the air in this station on this city with your end-of-the-year donation support. Call us at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Call us now or after the program, 1-800-247-3051. Now here's Tom Cantor with today's message. Now, verse 14, it says, when Abram heard, he armed. Abraham, we've seen before, here in Genesis chapter 14, verse 14, he goes off, we saw this, he's fearless, breaks the jaw of Cadillamer, and we saw before. That's not the same Abraham. That's not the same Abraham we saw in chapter 12, cowering behind the skirts of Sarah, his wife, uh, saying, take her, take her, save me. Uh, Lie, you know, say you're my sister. So what we saw in these three chapters, is that chapter 12, we saw the call of Abraham and the fall of Abraham. We saw in chapter 13 how God repaired Abraham. Abraham found his reparation at the altar where he confesses his sin, he's forgiven, and he's changed into a new man. And then in chapter 14, we see a new man, a new Abraham emerge on the scene. And all these chapters together, as we think of them, 12, 13, 14, are an illustration in the life of Abraham. Please turn to this verse that it illustrates, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is what's illustrated by these three chapters here of Genesis 12, 13, and 14 in the life of Abraham. So, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This verse is a description of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, the word if. That word describes the condition of, of the gospel. The gospel does not benefit everyone who hears it. There is a condition, and that's just given to us by the word if. Then the word, notice the words, any man. That describes the universality of the gospel. The gospel is for any man of any race, of male or female, of any status in life, of Jew or Gentile, can benefit. Any man can benefit. It does not benefit every man because of the word if, but it can benefit any man. And then notice the words be in Christ. That describes the position of those whom the gospel benefits. Who are the people that the gospel benefits? They are the ones who are in Christ. It only benefits those who are in Christ. Like Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it. And is safe. I remember the first time I was in Japan, and a Japanese businessman asked me, "Are you a Christian?" He should say, "Are you a Christian?" You know, and I said, "Yes." And what it really means to call ourselves a Christian is become begins an import when you're in a country like Japan where nobody's a Christian or a very small percentage are Christians. So you say what it means here in the U.S. has become a little bit watered down because everybody's a Christian. But anyway, but what does it mean to say I'm a Christian? It means we're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That name, Christian Christ, is a strong tower. And to be in, or to be called a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be in Christ. The name is a strong tower. To be in Christ 
is to see that the value of our lives, the whole value of our lives, is the outworking of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in us coming out through our lives. That's what it means in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. To be in Christ is to see ourselves as dead to living to ourselves for what we want and to live in a total dependence on him. That's what it means in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He lives through me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith or the trust or the belief in the Son of God who loved me gave himself for me. Then notice the words, he is a new creature. That describes our new identity. A new identity for us, for us benefiting from the gospel. In John 1, 12-13, it speaks about receiving him, as many as received him. To them gave he the power or the authority to become the sons of God, even to them to believe on his names, which were born, new creature, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And they see themselves like a newborn babe, like it says in 1 Peter 2, 12. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. We see ourselves as new babies, and we do what new babies do. They desire milk, we desire the word of God so they can grow. Yesterday I had a very nice meeting with our newborn granddaughter, Kate. She's now two months old, at my grandson's five-year birthday party, and a pool party. And little Kate and I had a, a nice communication together. She has a different language. We're both trying to figure out if we're going to learn each other's language. But for the meantime, we just looked at each other. And as we looked at each other, I could see Kate was single-focused. I mean, I was thinking about it. You know, what is it like for this little, about this big? And uh, life is very simple for Kate. Kate's life is all about milk. That's all it is. Kate lives from feeding to feeding, from nursing to nursing. When Kate is fed, she's happy. (laughs) When Kate wants milk, everybody knows it. So we're sitting around the pool, and after Kate had been fed, Cheryl was holding Kate, and she was looking at me, and I thought, she's going to look at things until she gets hungry, and then she'll go back to nursing. So Kate's life is just one big nursing episode. (laughs) made up of individual feedings separated by intervals of life experiences, like looking at me, quite experienced. Anyway, that's how this verse is describing us in our lives. Our lives are one big feeding on the Word of God, made up of individual feedings separated by intervals of life experiences in between our feedings. Like Kate's desire for milk is her overall desire our overall desires for the Word of God. That's what it means to be a new creature. That's new. To be a new creature in Christ is for us to be like newborn babes and desire in this way the sincere milk of the Word. Now, notice the words that says old things are passed away. That word describes the distaste that the gospel has now created or produced in us. Habits of life are distasteful. Liquor is now distasteful. It's not interesting anymore as it used to be. Movies that have swearing and taking God's name in vain, they're not interesting. They're distasteful now. Changes in taste are happening now. Las Vegas is not an exciting place anymore. What used to interest us, what used to excite us, are just old things that are just dying off. They're passing away, and they're not interesting anymore. Then it says, behold, that's the surprise of the gospel The person who the gospel is benefiting is surprised. He's surprised by not only how the old things are dying and passing away, but there's a surprise of what is now called 
all things. Those words, all things, describes the entirety of the gospel in a believer's life. The gospel is affecting all things in the life. Not just religious things, but the gospel is entering into every door in life. Even the doors that are marked personal, don't enter. The gospel is going right into the doors of the business life and the marriage life and the entertainment life and the thought life. All things expresses how the gospel is penetrating through every area in the life. And when the gospel enters those doors, it makes big changes. Like the time when I went away and Cheryl got into my study when I was away and she made big changes and made all kinds of decisions. She, she said to herself, well, he has several of these things. He doesn't need this, so I'll throw it away. <laughs> this needs to be organized, so I'll go over here. This is filthy, so I'll clean this. And when I came back home, it took a little while to get over the shock of it all. <laughs> she had, <laughs> all things became new. Anyway, but, she, but I recognize she did it because she loved me. And that's what the gospel does. It is the work of the loving God. It does in the believer's life. And the result is become new. The words become new. That expresses the goal of the gospel. The verb tense there and really is all things are becoming new. It's a process. That's a process we saw with Abraham. Chapter 12 of Abraham was a coward. But in chapter 14, that coward man was an old thing that passed away. And now chapter 14 is a new thing in Abraham, a courageous, brave man. And so Abraham comes back, he's rescued Lot, and now we want to look at this from several points of view. First, Abraham's point of view. Let's look at this great rescue from Abraham's point of view. Before this tragedy, Abraham's life was a life of abiding, in chapter 13, of abiding in Jehovah Jesus by his altar. He heard that Lot was taken, he's filled with the spirit of Jehovah Jesus, he knew God wants him to rescue Lot, he goes off. And he leaves with a lot of questions. Abraham has a lot of questions. And think about if it had been us in Abraham's position, knowing the what we must do. Abraham knew the what he must do, but he had no idea, no clue of the how he's going to do it. Or how, or put it in our terms, we know what we must do, but we so often find ourselves not knowing how we're going to do it. And when Abraham heard that Lot had been taken captive, he thought of a lot of things that he had to do. A lot of things he had to do. He thought a lot of things that he had to do meant he had a lot of questions for how he was going to do that. For all those questions he had to do, he had one answer. For example, first question, how was Abraham going to do the thing of convincing all his 318 men to go into battle against tens of thousands? Answer, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ that strengthened me. Number two, how was Abraham going to do the thing of practically running his army for an exhausting two weeks to overtake Kedol army's army? And during those two weeks, how was he going to keep his army of 318 from deserting him? Answer, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Next question. And during those exhausting two weeks of fast-paced march, how was Abraham going to do the thing of keeping his army not only intact, but then able to, to catch up with Kedolo-Aramir? And how was he going to get do the thing, the big thing, of slaughtering these tens of thousands with just 318 men? Answer, answer, answer. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, how was Abraham going to make sure that a lot stayed alive through this great slaughter, which would have ruined the whole venture? Again, Philippians 4.13. And we think, we think of Abraham, all these issues, and we say to ourselves, we got issues? <laughs> Abraham had issues. 
And God replies back to us when we think we have issues in life. I put a chapter in here for you. He put a chapter in here for me, chapter 14 of Genesis, so that when we think we got issues, we can see Abraham had issues. And for all those issues, when Abraham's on the trail, at night he would put his head on his pillow and do all those questions of how, 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 how am I going to do this thing? How am I going to do all these things? And Abraham just slept like a baby. Why? Because before going to sleep, Abraham would say, I don't know how I'm going to do all those things. But one thing I do know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Abraham didn't pace all night back and forth in the camp, worried about how he was going to do this. He just slept like a baby because Abraham was kept in perfect peace because he wasn't thinking about himself and he wasn't thinking about his issues. He was just thinking about God. And what Abraham thought about God, God, the great general in heaven, the great commander, says, look, do you see my servant Abraham down there? He's keeping his mind on me. He's trusting in me. He's keeping his mind on me. Set a garrison, God says, around Abraham and keep him in perfect peace. Just as it says in Isaiah 26.3, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on there because he trusteth in thee. And the garrison sent by God kept Abraham in this perfect peace. And Abraham's 318 men looked at Abraham when he was sleeping and when he was awake, and they saw Abraham's being kept in a peace of God. And they said, I can't understand it. It's not explainable. With all these issues that he has to deal with, how can he have this peace? It's not understandable. It passes understanding. And they were saying, Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep or garrison your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So when Abraham reaches back home, in verse 18 of Genesis 14, it says he brought back all the goods, and the people are rushing up to Abraham and saying, Abraham, you're such a great warrior. Abraham, you're such a great strategist. You're such a great organizer. You're such a great rescuer. And Abraham says, Psalm 115.1, Not unto me, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name. Give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. And every time someone would say, Abraham, you're such a great, Abraham would immediately say, Praise the Lord. That's what he'd say, deflect the praise. Now, when the reporters came to Abraham, and he comes back, and they want to interview Abraham. So they said to him, Abraham, tell us, how'd you do it? How'd you do it, Abraham? Abraham would say, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And Abraham looks back on all that happened, and he says, that was really something. Boy, that was something. And I wish that was written down for other believers so that they could read what God did. And God says, I got that covered. (laughs) Abraham, I'll write it down. I'll make it, let's see, chapter 14. (laughs) And it says, in Genesis, so that thousands of years later from this point, there's going to be a small group at the chapel on a Sunday morning, and they're going to read about what I did for you, Abraham, and how you put your trust in me. Now, from the point of view of the 318, they look at this, and the interviewer comes and says, okay, tell us your story. Tell us what happened. And they say, there's just one word that we have to say to describe what we saw. We were inspired. Inspiration. Our eyes were on Abraham. He inspired us. He had such a confidence, such a peace. He was rock solid. He was 100% transparent. He was honest with us. He wasn't silent. He told us that he didn't know how God was going to do the impossible through us, but he said that God didn't need us to know for the how. And so he kept saying to us things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. His confidence was inspiring. It was inspiring. And so we were willing to walk right into the jaws of death with our leader, Abraham. Oh, and one more thing. 
there was a peace that we saw in him that was ununderstandable. You couldn't understand that. And they would say, and now I'm a believer in the God of Abraham because he's made me glad. As it says in Psalm 126.3, the Lord hath done great things for us whereof we are glad. Last, king of Sodom comes out. He's interviewed. From his point of view, he says, I don't care how he pulled it off. All I know is that there's something in it for me. And God is not going to be considered in me. It says, call it lucky break. There has got to be some other explanation for what happened. I will continue my lifestyle of homosexuality. And I don't want to have to deal with God and stand before him. So it cannot be God, whatever happened out there. And he's the description of Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, or literally, there is no God for me. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for inspiring us this morning with what you've done in the life of a man who gave himself wholly to you. Help us, Lord, to be children of Abraham. In Jesus' name, amen. Tom, Abraham stood up for Lot against the five kings, and they could not prevail against Abraham. It reminds me of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, He would build his church upon himself, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. When Jesus said, I will build my church, what is the Bible referring to when God said, I will build my church? That's a very good question. You know, we pass buildings, and it says this church and that church. And and so it's very easy for us to think that what is being referred to is this building or this particular group here. But actually, the Bible is referring to, when it says the church, to something very, very specific. It's given to us in Colossians chapter 1, where where he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. So the body is the church. It says in Colossians 1.24, it says that, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the affliction of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So it's the body of Christ. It's the invisible worldwide body of all believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the church. And that's important for us to understand, that the church is all believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an invisible group because it's not all meeting in one building, in one denomination, in one group. But from heaven, when he looks down, the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees his body as made up of all believers and followers of him. That's why he said to Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Well, who was Saul persecuting? Saul was persecuting believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the Lord Jesus Christ, those believers were him. That was his body. That's why the church is all believers around the world. In Matthew 16, 18, it also talks about the gates of hell not coming against the church. What is that referring to? 
Well, the gates of hell, the key to understanding the gates of hell is in the word gates, because the gates of hell are the entrances to hell. And just like when you go up to someone's house and they have that little welcome mat there, think of that for the gate. In other words, it's a place of invitation. It's a place where the effort is made to try to get someone into them into the house, for example. So it's speaking of the entrances or the places of invitation. So the place of invitation into hell will not be able to prevail against the church. In other words, there is a desire on the part of hell. There is a there is a wantingness to draw people in to hell. That's why it says in Isaiah 5.14, therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. In other words, hell wants to consume. Hell wants to draw in. Hell is pictured as a mouth. Hell is pictured as a mouth that doesn't have a limit for how wide it opens. So that's what is called also the gates of hell. That's why it says in Proverbs 27.20, hell and destruction are never full. So the gates of hell are referring to the desire of hell to bring more and more men into that eternity of eternal suffering. Of course, you're saying that the church cannot be taken into the entrance of hell. But how are they trying to prevail against the church today? Yes, and that's very important because the gates of hell are trying to prevail against the church, and here's how they do it. First, step one, dislodge the truth. Dislodge the truth. What is the truth? In John 17, 17, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So it's a sanctifying or a cleansing truth, and it's the Bible. It's the word of God that is truth. Now, the gates of hell seek to dislodge the truth. How? Genesis 3, 1, it says the serpent was more subtle than any beast, And it says, and he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said. Those three words, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Hath God said. That is the first step to dislodging the truth is to doubt the truth, doubt the Bible. Did God really say that if you sin, that you will be heading right for hell? Did God really say that the only way to heaven is through the Lord Jesus Christ? See, all of those are the efforts to dislodge the truth by doubting the truth, doubting the Bible. Next, the next part is to deny the Bible. And that's the next verses down in Genesis 3 and verse 4, where the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. A bold-faced lie, a bold-faced denial of the Bible. That's why it's so very important to believe literally Genesis 1 and 2, where it says that God made the world about 6,000 years ago, and it was made in six literal 24-hour periods. I wasn't there. Who am I to argue with God? So we believe it because we do not want to get into the devil's course of doubting the Bible or denying the Bible. 
next to ensnare in sin. In 2 Timothy 2.26, we read that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Sin is a snare. Sin is a trap. Sin makes a person a servant to sin, and that's an ensnaring. And then the other thing that the devil does is to replace, once he's dislodged the truth, once he's got a person to doubt it, to deny it, then he replaces truth with error. And that we see in Matthew 15, 9, where it says, in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And in Matthew 15, 6, it says, And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. When tradition goes in and replaces truth, when it's so important that every day I must wear a yarmulke, on every day, twice a day, I have to put on tefillin, when at everything that goes into my mouth, it must be kosher food. What are those? Those are the commandments of men. That is the tradition. And what does tradition do? It makes void or none effect the commandment of God. That's replacing truth with error. Thank you for listening to Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today on Christmas Day. We want to wish you a Merry Christmas and thank you for your listenership and support of the Friendship with God radio program. Now, we have a book to offer you today, The Prophecy and Fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ, 194 of them written by Tom Cantor. It's a powerful book, and if you didn't get everything you wanted for Christmas, order this book today. And we're offering this book, 84 pages, 194 Prophecy and Fulfillments, and we're offering it for a donation of $20 or more to support this ministry. Donation of $20 or more, you'll receive The Prophecy and Fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Call us today, 1-800-247-3051. Let us know that you want the Prophecy and Fulfillments book and you want to make a donation towards the Friendship with God radio program of $20 or more, 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org for more information. Friendshipwithgod.org. Merry Christmas.